Patent Protection for Energy, Part 2. Hi everyone, I'm Matthew Birch. I'm a senior associate and a UK and European patent attorney in the engineering and tech teams at Cartmos and Ransford. Once again, I'm joined by my colleagues, Clary Taylor, a senior associate in our transactions team. Hello again, Matt. And Russell Woolley, a senior associate in our chemistry team. Hello. This is part two of a two-part special focusing on the energy sector. Last time we discussed what startup energy companies might need to consider whether it be putting the right agreements in place or ensuring your initial prototype products are protected. Today, we'll be considering the next stage in the patent application lifecycle. Essentially, once you have your idea up and running, what might you need to consider to ensure the best possible protection for your invention? So to resume the timeline that Russell spoke about in the last episode, let's talk about what to do when you've taken the initial steps that we discussed before. What might you need to consider next? Well, filing strategies and geographical coverage are clearly key considerations here. Some traditional approaches to patent protection can be seen by some to be a bit slow, particularly given the pace of innovation in in the energy field. Companies entering the sector will often also need to raise funding. And to achieve this, you will need to show that you're different from the competition. And patents are key to this. In saying this, there are ways that you can be proactive in a number of offices when it comes to acceleration. And one example that we routinely deal with is the UK IPO Green Channel. And that's designed to accelerate at no extra cost, environmentally friendly inventions. And that description is interpreted pretty broadly. So more or less any invention that has an environmental benefit can be utilized in the scheme. By using that mechanism, you can obtain a quick, cheap, high-quality search that's useful in forming future decisions. And by also requesting early publication, which is another option, it's often possible to obtain grant within a year or two sometimes, um, which can prove to be a very useful bargaining chip when talking to investors, as well, of course, as being a deterrent for competitors looking to enter the market. Of course, there's the option to accelerate a relatively narrow initial UK application, to cover key commercial products or objectives, and then file what we call a divisional application, which derives from the first application and carries the same priority date or initial filing date as the parent, as we call it. Or you can take a narrow, fast UK route to cover a commercial product, and then you can always use the European Patent Office as a conduit for seeking broader or possibly complementary protection in the longer term. So there are lots of neat ways that you can go about um, constructing a patent portfolio that covers off everything that you, that you would like to do. It's worth mentioning um, at this point that the European Patent Office is a non-EU body, so the UK is still a member state of the European Patent Office along with a number of other non-EU states. In using these offices, a side consideration, if you like, is is what's called the patent box. And that's a UK government scheme um, that allows for a reduction in corporation tax for qualifying profits arising from R&D in the UK. So for, for companies carrying out R&D in the UK, that, that's often an attractive um, side benefit to using uh, the patent procedure. 
There are other acceleration mechanisms around the world. One of the most widely known and used ones is the Patent Prosecution Highway, which a number of offices are signed up to, and, and the UK and Europe are a part of this. So turning to geography, we as a firm ran a survey a couple of years ago across three key energy storage sectors, those being thermal energy storage, electromechanical energy storage, and electrochemical energy storage. And we compared, firstly, the growth in the number of patent publications against the growth in the number of installations globally in each of these sectors. And secondly, we compared the geographical distribution of publications, patent publications, against the geographical distribution of installations across these sectors. So the first one is kind of general growth, and the second one is focusing in on where patent applications have been filed and where installations are located. And what we found was really quite interesting. On the growth comparison generally, the number of patent publications increased in each of the three sectors in line with the number of installations or more or less in line. For example, there was a spike in the number of electrochemical publications around 2010. And that was a time at which advances were made in battery technology, for example, high-power lithium-ion batteries for hybrid vehicles and for stabilising the electric grid, that sort of thing. There was also a spike in the number of thermal storage publications between 2008 and 2013. This was a period in which important new technologies such as cryogenic storage and ice-based storage, those sorts of things, were introduced to the market. So we saw some pretty clear correlation there between patent publications and the, the nature of the type of energy that we were talking about, which showed that companies were benefiting, they, they were you know, attributing importance to their IP and, and spending money on it. On the contrary, the correlation on the geographical side was far less apparent. The key markets for patent publications across all three sectors were US, Europe, China and Japan. And that's a pattern that's mirrored in, in many, if not most, industries. We did see that many localised hubs, for example, if you consider thermal storage, there were, th there were thermal clusters in South America, Northern Africa, South Africa and Southern Europe. And these seem to be often ignored, even though those particular areas provide ideal natural environments for that type of technology to thrive where there's a relatively low population density and widely available but intermittent sources of energy. And this suggested to us that more attention could be given to patent offices that had previously been thought of as being maybe expensive or perhaps tricky to enforce in, particularly now that significant efforts have been made to improve many patent systems across the world and make enforcement in traditionally maybe, maybe trickier offices a realistic possibility. Not to mention the fact that any IP right um, can act as a useful deterrent against competitors. On the North Africa point, it's, it's also worth noting that Morocco and Tunisia are now validation states of the European Patent Office, meaning that protection there can be obtained via a European patent application. On the flip side, so many listeners will know, and Russell mentioned it in the, in the previous episode, um, many will know about the option of filing an international or PCT, that stands for Patent Corporation Treaty, 
application, which is often a cost-effective way of centralizing a global filing and search procedure and also deferring decisions relating to exactly where geographical coverage is warranted and deferring the related costs as well. So the PCT route can be um, an attractive option for many companies, but if that route is chosen, which is common, companies should make sure that they're not missing out on protection in potentially valuable non-PCT offices. So the PCT covers most of the countries that you you would probably wish to file in, but the, the most prominent exceptions, particularly for the energy sector, would be Taiwan, Argentina and the Gulf. So to sum up this section of the discussion, it's worth considering not just where your usual or expected you know, immediately expected key markets might be, but also where patent protection could be of particular value to your company. For example, where raw materials might be sourced or where um, trial or commercial plants might be located. And as mentioned previously, your, your patent attorney can really be a valuable source of advice in carrying out this analysis um, when it comes to costs and when it comes to timeframes and you know the, the nuances of operating in, in, let's say, less common offices. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Russell works in our chemistry team. I work in the engineering and tech team. So Russell has particular experience in um, some of the details of obtaining valuable IP in the chemistry side of the energy sector. So Russell, what are some key messages for our listeners to take away from your perspective when it comes to you know, building a valuable patent and wider IP portfolio? It's important to keep patents in mind as your company grows, as you move further down the line from spin out to scale up. As you do this, you'll want to build up a, a deep, robust patent for portfolio, protecting your key products, and of course, with the right geographical scope, as discussed by Matt. And one way of doing this is by having multiple generations of IP protecting your products as you continue to optimize them. But each of these generations will, will bring with it its own nuances. So say you've come up with a new battery chemistry, some new mixed metal oxide that works in an electrode particularly well. Your first patent filing should be aiming to protect the, the fundamental chemistry of how this new material works. And you've only got one opportunity to get that right. That first filing needs to be given careful thought and attention. And for the reasons discussed in the first episode, we think um, this has benefited from regular contact between the technical team and the patent attorney, so that the attorney can really understand the fundamental chemistry of what makes this invention work to enable them to draft a claim protecting that chemistry that doesn't provide your competitors with an easy workaround. So that's your first fundamental filing, which hopefully gives you um, a broad scope of protection around your product. But once you've got that secured and filed, don't, don't stop there. I think all the, all the technical listeners here will understand there's much more to making a new product work than just coming up with some new chemistry. On top of the chemistry inventions, there may well be plenty of material science inventions which can add further layers of protection to your product. 
So suppose that your, your technical team may discover that this wonderful new chemistry in fact works even better if it's um if it's if, if your material is processed to say a, a specific particle size, a, a certain porosity, a certain surface area. But these material science type inventions can be the basis for subsequent generations of patent filing. But you need to keep in mind, or your attorney should be keeping in mind, that that's, that's their job, that these sorts of advances, which in, in the field we know as parameter-based inventions, they bring with them a further set of patent challenges. Um, without going into too much legal detail, how a patent examiner views a, a material science invention based on a, a certain particle size range for a material, for example, how one patent examiner in one jurisdiction would assess those claims can differ quite significantly to how a patent examiner from another jurisdiction might assess those claims. And these sorts of nuances uh, need to be appreciated right from the outset when drafting these subsequent material science type um, patent applications. One more thing to keep in mind when, when trying to build up this robust portfolio is don't forget process patents and also don't forget know-how or trade secrets and, and the two can go hand in hand. So your, your technical team might discover a, a particularly efficient manufacturing process for making your new battery material. A patent covering that might not protect the material itself, but if it protects this more efficient way of making it, it could be exceptionally valuable if your product proves to be successful enough to need manufacturing at large scales. So that's a, another way of providing another layer of protection. But you should also keep in mind that it might not be appropriate to file patents on anything. Some manufacturing process optimization type inventions might not meet the the, the substantive requirements for patentability of, of, of novelty or, or maybe inventive step. And it may well be better to keep hold of some of those sorts of innovations as know-how rather than telling the world about them in a, in a published patent application. And should you then come to partner with a, a manufacturer to, to scale up your material, to scale up the manufacturer, this know-how can still have value um, bundled up with licenses to key patents as, as part of a tech transfer deal. So there's a, a judgment call for the attorney to make when viewing any potential um, manufacturing process type inventions to say, well, maybe we might not get a patent for that. So maybe we should keep on to that as know-how. So these are a few things to keep in mind. There are many opportunities for patent protection not just for a, a new battery chemistry, but say uh, optimizing the material science of your new material. And equally, there may be inventions or, or know-how in more efficient ways of making a new material for use in energy. It's a recurring theme here, isn't it, that communication between the technical team and the patent attorney really is paramount in the product development process. And as you rightly said, that, that applies both before and after the initial patent applications filed. Chloe, we've spoken about the patent application procedure from the, the point of view of two patent attorneys, but what might companies need to consider at this point from a transactional point of view? Thanks, Matt. So, yes, I mean, at this point, it's a really busy time, I think, for the early stage company. So 
in the previous episode, we were talking about that setup of the company and how they make sure that the IP ownership is in the right place. But now they are really moving forward to try to work on a number of different limbs. So the first is that continued product development. So picking up from what Russell was saying about, yes, you've the importance of the first patent application, but then there will be continued R&D, which might bring continued patent applications. And of course, that might, and, and from, from a kind of commercial perspective, you're looking at potential research collaborations as well, or potential collaborations with other third parties in order to try to broaden and deepen the product portfolio that that company has. We might talk in a minute about what some of the about some of the challenges that that brings. But then the second thing, second strand that that early stage company is going to be looking at, I think at this point, is around their commercialization and what their their strategy for commercializing their product will be. And again, that that picks up one of the one of the things that you've spoken about from the perspective of where to file. And so looking at not just where you think you're going to be selling into as a company to where your clients would be, but also where you might be manufacturing, for example. And the final strand that the early stage company will be looking at, and I think will be looking at a lot, is is investment. How do they encourage investment and how can we as IP professionals help them to ensure that they're best placed to secure investment at that stage and throughout their their journey to what's being profitable. It's interesting you're talking about investment in, in this sector. And I, I think in this sector of energy and, and batteries more than most, it seems to me there's a, a great deal of hype that's around. And that hype may well be a vehicle for securing investments. But if there's hype for lots of different firms, how do you set yourself apart um, from the competition? Uh, I, I did some browsing this morning for, for daily mail headlines to do with batteries. And, and for you listeners outside the UK, uh, the Daily Mail is a, a tabloid newspaper more known for its celebrity gossip columns than its um, in-depth uh, scientific journalism. But even the Daily Mail has numerous headlines on, on batteries, which I think demonstrates the level of hype and public interest there is here. Um, I thought a couple caught my eye. One of them was uh, the holy grail of batteries. Scientists develop a lithium metal battery inspired by a BLT sandwich that could increase the lifetime of electric vehicles to that of gasoline cars. And another, which um, really focuses on invention, Ex-Navy officer turned inventor signs a multi-million deal to produce his electric car battery that will take drivers 1,500 miles without needing to charge. And I don't think many chemistry or engineering inventions in, in other fields, in other sectors outside energy, would be making national headlines like this. And I think this shows just how um, improvements in energy storage and batteries how these are on the, the pulse of the nation. Um, you, everyone's got a battery on their phone, after all, and everyone gets fed up with having to charge it. And these headlines, I think, demonstrate there's a great deal of hype around out there. So if you're going to differentiate your firm from the competition, we feel you should be using IP to justify 
any hype, to set yourself apart. And by having your IP in good order, perhaps using um, some of those options Matt discussed earlier of how to um, push your patent portfolio along more quickly, you acceleration grant via the green channel, for instance. If you can get your IP in good order and have it um, further ahead than the competition, you've got something, something tangible, something legal to, to back up any hype. You can say, not only do we have you know, some, a few results that might, might show some great performance, but we've got granted patents to protect, to protect that. And that may well be key to your firm securing early, early investment over, over the competition. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Russell. Um, one of the things that my team does quite a lot of is due diligence. And so we will act both, we act both for investors and those seeking investment in terms of due diligence. And so one of the things that you're looking for when you're doing that is both the, the existence of intellectual property and specifically registered IP like patent applications and granted patents, but also trademarks. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the entire package of IP that that company will have. And the other thing that you're going to be looking for, and this again goes back to those points that we were making earlier and in the previous episode about being able to show who owns what. So that chain of title is really important. Uh, one thing that you see sometimes happens is that founders will put IP into their own names initially with the with the intention of transferring things into a company name later. But sometimes that never happens. And I would, you know, strongly counsel early stage companies to try and get things into the name as far as they can to get things into the right name at the beginning. And have those documentation, have those contracts in place that they can use to show what that chain of title was. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's right. I think IP is key to, as you say, justifying the hype that you have when you get in, when you're looking in, in investors. There was another thing that I that I wanted to pick up from the things that you and Matt were talking about earlier, in terms of and sort of coming back to how people choose to commercialize and what and what strategy they take. I will say that there were a lot of different things that we could have talked about in this uh, section. And so considerations that we could probably fill, you know, several episodes talking about, but specifically that idea of geographic reach was something of kind of an interesting point of focus, I think. And what you know, what we often find is, is that, as we said, that companies will will think very strongly about where their clients are, but you do also have to think about where you're going to be working and where you might be manufacturing. And when companies are looking at to make products of any kind, there's the kind of essential choice that they have to make as to whether to make those products themselves or to have someone else make them on the kind of in, on behalf of the inventor company and you know the capital and organization involved in manufacturing at large kind of commercial scale is likely to be beyond the reach of most startups and so in general they're going to need to find a way to work with another company in order to get products made and 
as soon as you're bringing in another company into your into your sphere into your into your world a whole ream of ream of things come up and you know the first is just that very basic idea of trust you know you're having to hand over information as a as an invent inventing company to another party about and so you're giving information away about something that for you you've probably worked for years on crafting and that's a big it's a big leap it's a big leap and it shouldn't be underestimated because you do need to get that relationship right in order, because it's something that ideally is going to last that company for a long time as it continues to grow and beyond that kind of simple idea and so how do you you know how do you develop that trust and i think that's it's difficult clearly and and it has probably been even more difficult over the past couple of years when people haven't been able to travel so much so there's not been that ability to develop personal relationships that people would otherwise do but i think there are some some sort of fundamentals that the startup company should have in have in its mind so you know understand what its value is understand what what is special about what it is bringing to the table and i think knowing what is special about its patent applications and its inventions is really important to that and that idea of that education between the technical teams and between the patent attorney is is key and i think in this process you're also then starting to bring on other team members like kind of business development like commercial people as well and so they all need that education about the importance of the ip and the understanding about exactly what what is what is the interesting thing what is the key that this company has what is your usp so you also don't want to move too quickly in setting up these relationships i think there's often a lot of pressure for new companies to move at s- speed but if you're going to be work if you're a small company going to be working with a bigger company to partner then it's key for you as a smaller company to know what you've got and to ensure that what you're bringing is protected adequately and so you know use things like non-disclosure agreements um and kind of that careful sharing of information uh, in a previous episode of this podcast though we talked about the idea of trade secrets and how you might protect those and i recommend someone goes back and have a listen to that if you want a bit more information about how to do that because because we discussed it there but once you've kind of got that idea of trust and you've got an idea that this is the company that you want to partner with very then what you will need to do is to structure an agreement with that company with the manufacturing company in order to create that relationship and so one of the things you're going to be doing is licensing ip to them and so that picking up again the thing that you mentioned earlier russell about about know-how and what you do with that absolutely this is where know-how is really important because know-how is going to include all of the things that that inventor company has that's outside the scope of its patent application that it help, that helps it to actually make make a product the kind of how you do something not just what it is and so 
the license there'll be a license in place from the inventor company to the manufacturer which covers patent app the patents it also will cover the use of the know-how that's the kind of essentials of the ip coverage that you'd have in that license in that agreement what you will also start to get into is more around the kind of commercials and knowing how much you want to manufacture so it's it's very difficult when you're just starting out you don't necessarily know how much you need you don't know how many customers you have to service um and indeed the answer may be that you don't really have any customers initially so you may need to do this in stages you know have have a tech transfer agreement for example that enables the parties to get to know each other a bit better to understand if in fact the manufacturer can manufacture the product to the standard that the inventor company wants them to and then you would move forward in order to move to a more kind of commercial basis for manufacturing on the longer term so that would that might include things like providing forecasts of how much you need minimums so the inventor company is committing to certain volumes of production for a certain period of time which might be 6 months in the future might be 12 months in the future so there's this idea of commercial certainty for both the inventing company and the manufacturing company and that's something that again can be very difficult for the for the early stage company to deal with because you're looking at cash flows for 6 or 12 months down the line when at a new company stage that can be quite unpredictable particularly if you're not yet selling to customers but these are all things that that people will start thinking about at this point and then the final thing that we wanted to pick up at this point it was around that continued product development continued research collaborations and again the similar points to those we've made before here that you really that that the early stage company is going to want to be working may want to work with different companies in order to develop new products or to understand different applications for what it has already developed what what you find often in these combinations is that these collaborations might incorporate some academic institutions might inc- incorporate some other commercial commercial companies as well some of whom might ordinarily be competitors and again ha- having strong agreements in place which explains the scope of the collaboration what any particular party can do with the intellectual property that they they create or is created jointly as a result of that collaboration is really important in order to try and make sure that that the inventor company walks away with something that's actually useful to them and that they can move forward and that they haven't found, they haven't accidentally kind of barred their way from progressing in an area because they've committed to they've got some joint ip now with a competitor company that actually they have no desire to work with again i think probably a key message that we've all put forward during this this two part special is that all aspects of ip on both the 
client or company side, if you like, and the attorney or counsel side, whether we're speaking about patents, trademarks, designs, transactional matters, anything, they all need to work in harmony together to ensure that the interests of the client or the company are looked after properly. And that's, you know, that's something that we really enjoy as a firm, you know, experts in each of those parts of the jigsaw um, under the same roof. Well, that's all we have time for today. Um, so thank you very much, Chloe and Russell, for your contributions in, in this two-part special. I hope all the listeners found it enjoyable and, and thank you for tuning in. Um, as I mentioned in the last episode, if you have any questions, then you can get hold of any of the three of us on our email addresses, which are on our uh, web profiles on the Cartmars website, or you can contact Cartmars more generally at communications at cartmiles.com. Take care and see you soon.